This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. New episodes of Women at Work premiere on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern, and our entire back catalog is available 24-7 via podcast. Just search on Women at Work and Laura Zarrow wherever you get yours. And please be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle, at SXM Business, as well as mine at Laura's Arrow. So at the heart of what we do here in my other job at Wharton People Analytics is to develop evidence-based insights, ideas anchored in solid research, and put them into practice to help individuals and organizations thrive. Core to that is advancing diversity, equity, inclusion across the professional landscape, which is why I am so excited to talk with today's guest. Trier Bryant is the co-founder and CEO of Just Work, a new company built on Kim Scott's superb book that we recently discussed here on the show. Trier is a seasoned strategic leader in the people space, having held leadership roles at Astra, Twitter and Goldman Sachs. She served as an advisor on DEI and talent strategies to organizations that include Equinox, Airbnb, SoundCloud, and the Rockefeller Foundation. This all follows what was already a stunning career in the military, where Trier served as a combat veteran in the U.S. Air Force as a captain leading engineering teams while spearheading diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives for the Air Force Academy, the Air Force, and the Department of Defense. So with that, let me say welcome to Trier. We are grateful for your service and thrilled to have you join us today. Thanks, Laura. Excited to be here. Also, can you just rewrite my bio? Because that's not what it says on the paper. I love that. That was awesome. I think you're I need pretty a transcript awesome. for that. No problem. Happy to share. Uh, feel like you're worthy of some celebration. So Trier, when I was learning about you and, and exploring the awesome videos that are online, the kind of work you're doing, I saw a little tidbit that I thought was interesting, which Uh-oh. is that you grew up <laughs> traveling around the world. Is that correct? I did. So my name, Trier, actually comes from the city in Germany off the Mosul River that I was born in. Um, not really too creative for my parents, um, <laughs> but I was born and raised in Germany, lived in Germany, Belgium, the Netherlands, and then um, moved to the U.S. I lived in Minnesota, Atlanta, Georgia, Antigua, Guatemala, and then to Colorado. So been all over. Yeah. So before you ever landed, really on U.S. soil on a steady basis, you were tra- you were moving between cultures on a regular basis. On a regular basis. German was my first language. Flemish was my second. And then finally learned um, English. I think my mom to this day can still yell at me in German and I will know what she's <laughs> saying. Um, yeah. And, um, but I, you know, I just say I'm the daughter of a, a mother just full of wonderless. And it was a wonderful way to just experience the world. How did you learn to transition from culture to culture as you were going through that? Yeah, I think that like as a child, right. I think one of the things that I've learned is that, um, a child's normal is their life. 
So I don't think that I really had to focus on transitioning. That's just what it was. Um, and then going into the military where people are like, oh, you're never going to stay in an assignment more than two or three years. And I was like, I've never stayed anywhere in my life longer than, you know, three years, which is actually that, that that's about that. That's where I start getting that itch, Laura, <laughs> where it's like, oh, I think it's time for a different scenery. Um, yeah. So I've actually been out here in the Bay Area for more than three years. And I think it's definitely time. Okay. So those of us who are fans, we'll keep that in mind if we want yes. a career spotting in our own neighborhoods. I know. I'm looking for a new place to settle down for, but for, the reason, for another three years. <laughs> there are a couple of reasons why I ask about this. One is because I do think it's a fascinating way to grow up and has to be a part of who you are, but also specifically because your work is essentially in culture and yeah. making cultures thrive that have people coming with all different kinds of identities. Um, Talk to me a little bit. Am I crazy in connecting the dots between these no, two things? No, you're absolutely connecting the dots. And the other part that's really interesting is I, I think that I was introduced to the concept of race as being a Black person much later in life, right? Because when I was in Europe, first of all, I've always been different. I've always been in whatever the minority group is, but for different reasons. So when I was growing up in Europe, I just remembered things like it was a language barrier or mm -hmm. I was American, right? I, I Or my, my family wasn't military. So even when I was around the other American kids, um, they were on base in military. We lived off base. So there was always something that just always made me a little different <laughs> being the other. And then it wasn't until I moved to Atlanta, Georgia, moved to Atlanta, Georgia. And at this point now I'm in like fifth, sixth grade. Okay. And now I really started to understand being black. That's where I started to learn the words like racism and bigot. And I remember the first time that I got called the N word. Um, I was in, uh, I was in fifth grade and I had just started at this school where go outside to play and the PE teacher to warm up said, everyone run two laps around the basketball court. Um, now, let me tell you, Laura, I didn't like running then. I don't like running now. <laughs> and then after those two laps, everyone sat down and then the PE teacher said, okay, now the niglets give me two more laps. And some of the kids got up and started running and I didn't. And a little black girl that I was friends with was like, oh, Trier, he's talking to us. Like I said, I don't like to run. So I was confused. And so I went home and I asked my mom, like, mommy, what is a niglet? And she was like, excuse me, what did you say? And they went to the school and it was handled and he was fired. Um, but that was my, and I think for, I think to me, and I look at my nieces and my nephews, I think that's a later age to be introduced to race. Well, it, it, it's a fascinating story on multiple counts. A, a yeah. couple that I want to zero in on, that whole story we could discuss for an hour, um, is it sounds like you were living an experience of always being part of an underrepresented group. That's right. But in a fluid way, because the aspects of your identity and how it related to the world that you were in changed with each move. That's right. Yeah. And, and so I think that, um, that has become, and when people are like, Tria, when did you start your DNI work? And I was like, well, let's see, like <laughs> elementary. It was just always something, you know, like I said, going back to when I was the only kid 
who couldn't live on base, didn't go to school on base. So I was like, why, why aren't there other American kids that can play with me at the park down the street versus like my parents getting a pass from someone to go on to base, right? Um, so it was just these little things where I think that we always seek community. And so I started seeking that community of people that were like me at a very young age. Um, but that means that I got real comfortable being uncomfortable with that. And I'm appreciative of those experiences. Um, it's touching to hear that you've processed it. One of the questions I have to ask, because I didn't know this was part of the story, um, is that that's such a precious time for us as girls. On the brinkhood of womanhood, we know it's when a lot of girls will fall into what Girls on the Run refers to as the girl box, that Mm -hmm. place that constrains us when we start to get this bigger sense of um, the lack of power that we have in the world and doubt ourselves. That becomes exponentially more intense when you're also have other identities that make you underrepresented and the profound impact of stepping into America's racism as what, a nine or a 10 year old? Yeah. How did, did you lose yourself? And we see this superwoman that you are now on the other side of that, (laughs) or were you able to hold on to yourself in that process? How'd you do it? Yeah. No, well, one, uh, thank you. But I, you know, I think, look, I'm incredibly grateful for two things my family, particularly my grandfather and who we call Sampa and my mother. Um, And I was raised in a family where I was, you know, my grandfather would just be like, Trier, you do what you want, right? Like people would yell at me and my grandfather would be like, no, Trier can do what she wants. (laughs) And um, my mother, (laughs) um, she took a very different approach of raising me. Like, Laura, I grew up in the car with the cassette tapes of like Zig Ziglar and like Tony Robbins and like, <laughs> like my punishment, like wasn't being grounded. It was like, Trier, go read this John C. Maxwell book on like leadership and write me a 10 page single space <laughs> paper, right? For, I, if you all want to take some of those lessons, right? So I, I think that my, my mom just took a different approach and how she raised me. And then the second part is those sports. I'll be honest, sports is what really kept me grounded. I encourage all young girls to play sports. The the teamwork, the leadership, the discipline was just powerful. So I swam growing up and like, look, not a lot of black girls swim. Um, And so I swam and up until high school, my sophomore year, and that's when I started playing volleyball. And then I actually went and played volleyball at the Air Force Academy. Um, and I love that this little shout out for the power of sports, because that's also going back to girls on the run. That's right. It's, it's so it's such an essential opportunity for girls to develop that sense of themselves and their teamwork. By the way, for those of you who just tuned in, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. And I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. And my guest today is the amazing Trier Bryant, who's the co-founder and CEO of Just Work. And not for nothing, a combat veteran. So Trier, talk to me about with what sounds like a somewhat unorthodox upbringing. Yeah. You know, by the time you were 10, you were a woman of the world. What made you choose to go into the U.S. military? A whole bunch of lies. Um, So (laughs) Laura, let me tell you what, what had happened was, is no, I am I'm stubborn. I was hardheaded. I probably still am asking certain people. And, um, I spent, I have spent a lot of my life doing things because people told me I couldn't. 
And so I was getting recruited for volleyball. I was actually headed off to Duke. I was really excited. My plan was I was going to go to Duke. I wasn't going to go to class. I was going to party. And then like, probably like, you know, marry a basketball player. My life is going to be great. Um, but then one of my mentors who was a volleyball coach at Air Force Academy, um, we, we went to, um, breakfast one weekend and she had talked about how there was a girl that she had recruited that she had signed but unfortunately she got pregnant and so she wasn't going to be able to come so she says I'm down to recruit for next year and she looked down pathetically at her plate and she said well I would have recruited you Trier but you you're just not smart enough to get into the Air Force Academy what and look she knew what she was doing right (laughs) Um, I was like, what? She was like, yeah. She was like, you're not smart enough to get in. And so here whole, then I was like, yes, I am. So I felt like I had to prove something. And so then I had to get my appointment, which is basically the Air Force Academy. Sorry, um, your, your, your appointment that the Air Force Academy is um, that we want you. Then you have to get a nomination from the president, vice president, or congressional representative. So then I got that. And then I was like, see, I could. And then it was like, oh, well, you won't make it through basic training. So then I was like, okay, I can do basic training over the summer and still make it in time for preseason at volleyball and do like, you know, and then it was like, oh, you won't make it through your freshman year. Laura, you see where the story is going, where it's like so forth and so on. And then I look up and now I'm graduating. And so what's interesting though, is when I got out of the military, one of a general who was my mentor who knew this story, I was like, sir, this is it. I'm getting out. And he was like, well, I bet you won't make general. And I said, sir, I bet you I can, but I'm not going to spend the next 20 years of my life proving it to you. Like I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So heed that anybody who says cheer Bryant can't do something. It's like a dare to make you do it. Right. I would like to think that I am, you know, I've matured past that, but every now and then people still catch me with something and I'm like, yes, I can. Yes, I can. (laughs) Okay. So a couple of questions about that experience. Um, You know, it sounds like you were not oriented towards going into a highly structured environment where um, ambition and duty was a major driver. But somehow you went into that environment and you succeeded. And I'm guessing it's not just because people told you you couldn't do it. What switched in you? How did you find that gear, that drive to excel, especially and advance the mission? Um, So one of the things that I appreciate about the service academies that a lot of people don't realize is that most kids that age, you're not going into a service academy being like, I want to serve my nation and I want to, and this like very, you know, honorable thing. What I appreciate is that I had four years to get there because that's not why I started. Right. And it's the training and it's the development and it's understanding the uniform that you wear. It's understanding the shoulders that you stand on. It's understanding the history of the Tuskegee Airmen. It's understanding the history of General Marceli Harris, who was the first black woman general, um, who was an advisor and a dear mentor of mine. She recently passed in the last couple of years. So to understand the gravity as you get there. um, But what I, what really kept me there is I had so many experiences where I felt like I needed to be there. And it's the same way. And it's the same way that I feel about the work, you know, that I'm doing now with just work. Like, I feel like this work is a culmination of all my experiences. Like I've having bad experiences and not just being like, well, that felt shitty and like put in like, and just moving on, but being like, that didn't feel good. And I don't want people behind me that look like me to feel that way. I don't want anyone to feel that way. So like, how do we change that? Okay, so I'm reading stuff into that that may be correct or incorrect. So Mm -hmm. I'll share it. Tell me where I'm on or off. 
stepping in, I I know from the outside, and my ex-husband was a veteran, that the military is a distinct culture with lots of subcultures within it. It is. And you, at this point, were an expert in moving from culture to culture. Mm -hmm. Um, To what degree was the culture of particularly the Air Force, but also the military as a whole, new to you? Um, And what were the things that were most challenging for you as you entered it? I have some preconceived notions about what it's like to be a woman in there, but I don't want to presume. Yeah. Um, Both of my parents were salespeople. And I think that there's a lot of principle in sales about, hey, I'm going to show up how you need me to show up so I can get the deal that I think that I observed and that I learned. And so I'm very comfortable flexing so that I can be successful in that environment. Okay. Um, and one of the things though, that I'm appreciative of that is unique to the military and that I have not consistently experienced in all other industries is that the military not only teaches you how to mentor, but teaches you how to be a mentee. That's wait, pause. That's huge. It really is. It really is. It teaches you how to be a mentor, but it also teaches you how to be a mentee. So that means at first, someone taught me how to be a mentee. Someone taught me how to listen. Someone taught me that when someone says these things, you do it. When someone says, Lieutenant, get on my calendar, I get on your calendar and I come (laughs) with questions and I have an ask and I do, right? And, and, And that for every identity that I, that I identify with or that someone sees, people were tapping me on the shoulder and saying, Trier, do this, don't do this, do this. Now I get to make the choice, right? But even, you know, someone said, Trier, we're always going to tell you where the landmines are. And even when you blow yourself up, we're going to dust you off and we're going to put you back out there, right? Um, But if you listen and, and when people, people want to be a part of your success and people saw that in me. And I think that I show, I, I get feedback. that like, I show up, I'm a very good mentee. Like you tell me to, I'm going to be like, okay, but if I don't, we're going to have a conversation about it. And so, you know, that your investment is going somewhere and I'm incredibly grateful for the mentors, the sponsors, the coaches that I've had that have invested in me and then told me to pay it forward. And that's what I do. This is, wonderful to hear and share. And I think important. And just as a personal experience, which I mentioned on one previous show, I didn't discover until I was late in my forties that I had actually been unmentorable when I was in my Mm twenties, that nobody had really talked to me about mentorship and how to receive it. And I love framing this as a real headset and skill. It is. And I love that you acknowledge, like I was not mentorable, but that actually started when I was in high school. So that Air Force Academy volleyball coach was the one that was like, I'm, I am, and that, and people will be like, you just started playing volleyball when you were like, basically like a sophomore in high school, but you played D1. Yeah. Because I had someone with their foot up my behind (laughs) verbally who, who made, who, who said they were like, Trey, you're not coachable. And so I, I, I'm appreciative that I got through that when I was in high school with volleyball. Um, And then it applied in different areas of my, of my life. So how did that shape how you now mentor? You know, what's interesting is that, um, I was actually in therapy the other morning and I had, I told my therapist, I was like, I've been getting feedback recently that like, I overextend myself that I give too much. And I, and she was like, well, where do you think that comes from? And I said, I think that they, people just haven't had the experiences or come from the cultures that I come from because I come, I professionally grew up in an environment where 
someone invested in me and I pay it forward. And because of how much is given to me, I have, I feel such a responsibility to, to give that forward and have nothing and have no expectation of anything in return, because that's what I was taught. And I don't think that, um, definitely people in the tech industry, we don't, it's very superficial, the relationships, but I wish like, for example, when I got to Goldman, when I interviewed at Goldman through the veterans integration process, a woman from the women's network reached out to me and prepped me for an hour. A black person from the black network at Goldman Sachs called me and prepped me for an hour. And a veteran from the veterans network called and prepped me for an hour. So when people say, how did you get that job? I say, I am, I would have been stupid had I not, right? <laughs> like, like I had three hours of prep and they did that by design. That was their strategy. And so when I was at Goldman, same thing, people tapped me on my shoulder, Trier, this is how you're successful in this environment. Laura, when I came to tech, my first role at Twitter, do you know the people that reached out to me and wrapped their arms around me? Who? White male veterans. That's and that so was interesting. it. Mm-hmm. But that was it. And that was it. It wasn't women. It wasn't really black professionals. Now, if I was proactive to seek out those conversations, you know, there's people that would engage, but I never had to, I never sought that out in the military. And I didn't seek that out at Goldman. I mean, eventually, but I didn't have to at first because people proactively saw me and reached out. So I want to tap into another part of your background that, because all of this clearly shaped you and it's clearly part of this whole tool chest that you're you know, bring into your own career, not to mention now careers of myriad other people. Um, but you also majored in systems engineering. That's right. And it seems to me like you're a systems thinker. Again, are these dots worthy of connecting? They how are. does, how did that training shape the way that you look at the problems you're trying to solve? So I just, I love some of your questions because it just brings back so many memories of sometimes poor decisions that I've made. Um, (laughs) So I actually chose systems engineering because it was the first year they had created that major and all my friends chose it. Like it wasn't because I liked it or I wanted, I didn't even know what it was, but it was like, oh, all like all the athletes were like, we're going to take this new major because they don't really know what it is. So like maybe the classes will be easier or something. And we were like, yeah, we could take classes together. Then like we can work on projects together when we're traveling and on the volleyball team and stuff. And so that's literally how I chose my major. All the really like most important criteria for making a decision, right. (laughs) Um, And so, but but what was great is that I did like numbers um, because English is my third language. I've, I've always been self-conscious just to be transparent about my language, about writing. I I don't like to write. Um, and, and so I liked numbers and I liked engineering and so I'm an engineer, which is great. And I'm, I love spreadsheets and I love formulas and I love algorithm. I love it. And then to then go into, I was a 17 Delta, a cybersecurity engineer in the air force. And then I had to learn how to script and code and do all these other things. And I did not like that. Um, and, um, but it, but I, but I, but I am appreciative of that background because being in a quote unquote people leader, HR, mm-hmm. hate the term HR, we'll say it once. And then we're never going to say it again. Right. Um, people, you don't find a lot of like technical data people in that space. And so I'm very data driven. And, and so I'm always like, well, what does the data tell us? Right. I don't believe in like, ah, this is the right thing to do. So we should do this strategy. You're like, we care about DNA. No, there's a business case. Right. Let's look at the data. 
right? Let's, let's follow the numbers. And that is really powerful because it's a different approach to, to the, to what, to what the strategy and the initiatives are in the people space. It's also core to real people leadership and the whole talent pipeline. Um, So in this transition where it sounds like you were recruited out of the military into Goldman. Oh no. I got tired of playing in the sandbox. I got another, (laughs) I got an assignment that would have taken me to like Afghanistan for a year when I was already traveling um, to the AOR, the area of responsibility to the Middle East every six months for two to three months. I was on a team with a very, very high ops tempo where we were doing technical assessments on all the networks to secure them. And then I got this assignment to go to Afghanistan for a year. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. I was like, I'm done. Um, So actually I was going to go to business school. Okay. I was going to go to business school. I was heading off to Chicago booth. Life was great. I was getting out of the military in April. School doesn't start into the fall. I was like, I'm just going to hang out. Here comes my mother. Oh my gosh, you're going to have a gap in your resume and work history. No one's ever going to hire you. And I was like, look, if you don't want to hire me because I have a gap from April to like September after four years at the Air Force Academy and seven years active duty as a combat vet, I don't want to work at your company. (laughs) But then deep down inside, I kind of got a little scared. Um, So I heard about the veterans integration program at Goldman. I applied. I had no idea what Goldman Sachs was, except for like they ruined the economy and they were the reason why I was upside (laughs) down on my house. I didn't know what they did, but I started to understand the enormity of the opportunity. And then I ended up at Goldman and got a full time job and went there. um, What was it like to switch then into that culture where the mission is really um, bottom line is it's about Money. money. It's about banking money. You're absolutely right. And you know what, Laura, it took me a while to have that paradigm shift to go from the military where everything the military does is about saving a life or taking a life. And everything at Goldman was about making a dollar or losing a dollar. And it took me a while to get there because that's an un, that's a that's a huge shift, right? I remember the day when um, gold dropped. Mm-hmm. And people were just losing their mind at 200 at 200 West, like everyone yelling and screaming. And I was like, but I just want to be clear. No one died. Right. Like I'm a little confused. <laughs> and that's when someone pulled me aside and was like, but Trier, that that's, that's the, that's the new paradigm, right? You have to right. have change your mentality. And, and I had to have that shift. Sure. This is all amazing. And do I have it right that you were doing talent acquisition at Goldman? That's right. So I got brought in, they had a campus diversity recruiting team. And they wanted to drop the campus and make it the America's diversity recruiting team. And what did diversity talent acquisition look like from undergrad interns, MBA interns, but all the way up to executive hiring, right? Um, And so that's what we did. And then by the time I left, it was the global team and there was a global strategy, which was really exciting. It must've been. And, And Goldman's been known for taking this seriously and really investing in this. You know, there's a lot to be said. Look, no organization is perfect, but I really commend the work that Goldman has done. And I think one of the reasons why they do it well is because they really push their leaders to understand and have the business case as to why we're focused on this, right? It's not the right thing to do because that's going to go out the window when you have a bearish quarter or a year. But what is, you have to root it in the bottom line. And Goldman, I think, does an exceptional job of that. So in these roles, those particularly in talent and 
acquisition. It sounds like you specialized in that. You worked on that in the military. You worked on it at Goldman. You brought it into tech. Mm. Um, but when we step back and we think about, you know, the people, the the people role in an organization, it's not just getting people in the door. It's helping them thrive while they're there, advance right. while they're there, and help the organization retain them. Yeah, um, it's a long term investment. It's a long game. Yeah, um, how did you? partner with those other parts of the organization did you get to and what did you learn from them it's the whole employee life cycle and what's really interesting is that there's really not people in the military because you're running your own organization and team from start to finish and so you in essence basically are your own people organization because you're doing your promotions you're doing all of these things um you don't really hire but you're bringing in new talent you know people are moving assignments mm-hmm. and then at Goldman everything there is so cross functional i'm so appreciative that that's where it was my first opportunity to really work with learning and development compensation the analytics team business partners like all of your different pillars within the people space so i had a point of view and I got to be in those rooms to learn, but then also to say, hey, how are we making sure that this is inclusive and equitable? So then going to tech, I had a point of view on the on everything in the people's space, right? Um, and I like to make my point of views known. And so, um, you know, just like talking about like, if I'm bringing in talent and you can't retain them, because we're not paying them equitably, we're not training them, we're not developing them, then like it's causing more work for my team. So I'm invested, right? So I wanna make sure that we're paying equitably. I wanna make sure that we're promoting, we have the pipeline. And we're not saying, oh, we didn't promote any women on this team when it happens, but we're looking at it nine months before promotions happen to say, who's in the pipeline? to be promoted. Oh, we don't have anyone. Well, then what do we do to fix that? So we can set people up for success. Um, Because oftentimes we do, when we do take the time to look at the data, we look at it too late versus Mm -hmm. how do we take a step back and look at the data early so that we can have a better understanding or prevent what the data could potentially sell us later from six, nine months when, you know, this certain initiative already occurs. So that's for me where people analytics is particularly exciting. We call it, it people is. analytics 1.0, 2.0, and 3.0. Yes. When are we using it to figure out what's happening? When do, are we using it to predict what will happen? And when are we using it to really change what's going to happen? That's right. I love that. What was your journey into those things? You know, it's interesting because I'm constantly thinking in that way, but what I've learned within organizations that I've been in and a lot of my clients is that people don't think about it. And it's interesting, Laura, how you said, oh yeah, that's where people analytics get interesting. And I will call it people analytics as well. And then a lot of these smaller tech companies will be like, well, we're not big enough to have a people analytics. No, <laughs> do the assessment and the analysis yourself, yes. <laughs> right? Right. Like it's just, it's, it's a methodology. It's an approach and we need to have that. Um, but the thing is, is that, most organizations aren't doing it because they're not collecting the data. They're afraid of the data. So how many organizations do you even know? I know organizations that don't even have at the very minimum gender and race data on their employee population. I have a client right now that they have more data on their clients Mm -hmm. than they do on their employees. Which suggests to me, A, a misunderstanding of who your most valuable asset is. That's right. And I wonder if part of, and we know they don't collect information because they're afraid. It's like, my I don't get on the scale because I don't want to see what the number is. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> but I wonder if there's another part of it, which is that, and this is where I think just work comes in, um, is that taking that first step is frightening if the vocabulary and the tools are not familiar to you. Mm -hmm. um, and that I wonder how many organizations are even afraid of how to collect the data because they're afraid of misstepping. Yeah. As opposed no, to saying right. we want to learn about things like race and identity, and right. this is how we're going to start. Yep. Is Do you think that inability to know how to even talk about what we want to learn is getting in the way? We have two um, we have two workshops that we do called seminars. We call them language 101 and language 201, because that is exactly right, Laura. Language is one of the biggest barriers to even having these discussions, right? Even something as simple as like, do I say black? Do I say African-American, Hispanic, Latinx? What does that mean? LGBTQIA plus, is it all the same thing, right? Um, and I just finished a workshop with one of our clients on this and they had over 200 of their employees join and the engagement and the questions were so incredible. And so it's just another signal that people are like, I've never heard this, I didn't know. I, and this is exactly why I don't have conversations with my friends that are different than me because I don't want to say something offensive, right? We're so scared. Um, and so that's what happens within organizations. It's the same thing. So we have to get past that. We have to collect the data and we have to equip ourselves, empower ourselves with the language to have it. And then also say, look, we make mistakes. I learned something in this, um, in this last session that I just did. I learned something every day. The conversations are continuing to evolve and that's okay as they should. Um, but what's important is, are we taking the time to be a part of the conversations and to come along on the journey so that we can be informed and we can be inclusive? I could go down a whole road of just, see, we could do five <laughs> shows together too, um, of, of this whole issue of how do we learn to listen and how do we learn to talk to each other? I hope to come back in a, in a couple of minutes, but first let's take a big step back and for the listeners who don't know or who maybe didn't get to catch the Kim Scott show, what is Just Work as an organization? Okay, so as an organization, Just Work is Kim's second book. Um, Just Work, How to Get Shit Done Fast and Fair. Love the title. Um, and it is really a framework to name the root causes of workplace injustices, which we define as bias, prejudice, and bullying. Um, bias is not meaning it. Prejudice is meaning it. And bullying is just quite frankly, being mean to cause harm. Right. <laughs> right. And then, but what's interesting is like when I first read the book, Laura, it was really powerful because yeah. it forced me to sharpen my own perspective of my experiences in the workplace. Right. And so it gives you this simple framework that Kim brings to life with her very vulnerable and personal stories in the book, but we all can bring to life with our own experiences. But when you can name it, you can solve for it. And the problem is that I didn't have the language to name what was happening to me. So then how do I solve for it? And that's what happens for individuals, leaders, and organizations as well. So Just Work, the book, is a framework to name the workplace injustices and then specific tactical and practical solutions for each of these different experiences. Just Work, the company then basically works with organizations and leaders of how do you actually operationalize that and how do you put it into practice for sustainable change within your organizations. For those of you who just tuned in, you're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm your host, Laura Sarrow, and I'm talking with Trier Bryant, and she's the co-founder and CEO of Just Work. So Trier, um, to what degree are you guys a startup versus a consulting firm? 
where are you in like the stage of development? Oh goodness. I feel like there's going to be people listening that are going to get mad at my answer. Okay. (laughs) Well, one, I just got feedback from a CEO at one of our, our companies, a large tech company that most people have the app on their phone. And he said, Trier, you should not call what you all do consulting. And I thought that was going to go a whole different direction. Right. But I was ready for the, I was ready for the radical candor feedback. Right. Um, And so he said, because I pay consultants to come in and they just tell me what to do and maybe my teams do it. Maybe they don't, um, but they just talk at me. He's like, you all come in and you go, so this is a strategy. This is what the organization is going to do. And here are your choices. Either your team can do it. My team can do it, or we can collaborate and do it together. But either way, we're going to execute and implement these things. Um, And he was very appreciative of that, of meeting his organization where they're at. So I'm starting to, we're starting to get away from like, I don't want to say consulting Mm -hmm. um, because it's really about change management. What we do is change management because we're implementing and we're going to meet you where you're at because everyone's at a different starting place with their DE&I journey, with their culture, with the resources they have. And we have to be honest about that, right? There's not a one size fits all. Now, as far as a startup, I don't consider it as a startup. I, I think that we're just very fortunate that Kim gets to do what she loves. I get to do what we love. And we have people on the team that do what we love and we do a really good job. And so we're just out here doing it. Um, and you're and doing something that really matters. And, and we're doing something that matters, doing something we're passionate about. And we're doing something that we believe in. Um, and, you know, Laura, one of the great things about co-founding a company and partnering with the author of Radical Candor we give, we just give feedback all the time, very directly, very <laughs> radically candid, because we know that we like we know that care personally. We know that that's there, mm-hmm. and so I think that allows us to move a lot faster on some things. Um, and then we implement the things from you know the the book and the framework. So we 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 call them our our bias interrupters, which I'm sure you talked about with Kim. Is like yep. a bias interrupter is having the shared vocabulary and norm of how you disrupt and interrupt bias real time, and you invite someone in to give them that feedback, create a learning moment so everyone can learn. We throw purple flags. Um, if Kim was here today, we would have at least thrown two purple flags on each other, right? Um, <laughs> and and but it's we see it as a learning moment. And, and, and we do that in our, in our meetings and our sessions, and it's really great. So aside from radical candor in this book, Kim's also, I think of her as a superstar innovator who has this ripple effect of helping other organizations um, make change happen. She absolutely does. And you mix that with, and it seems almost like that way that our careers make sense when you look at them in retrospective, because we see all the ingredients that landed. It sounds yeah. like part of what you're continuing to do is walk into the culture of these new companies that are your clients yep, and have to figure out how to help them achieve their own goals. Clearly something you've done a lot in the past. Yeah. And given that you use that term, meet them where they are. Um, talk to me about how you go in and, t- and take their temperature, um, kind of assess where are they? What tools do you use to figure that out so that you can figure out how to serve them? Yep. Um, I really appreciate the question because I think that people try to over-engineer that, but we do an audit, right? Um, for those that say, Hey, how are we doing? Let's do an audit. And there's basically three things that help that there's three inputs into the audit, and then we can do our analysis. So one, we say, what does the data tell us? You know, I'm going to start there. <laughs> what does the data tell us? I'd be and, sad if you didn't. <laughs> right. So 
we want all the data. We want all the information. And that could even be not just like data on your employees, um, but data across your entire employee lifecycle, compensation, termination, data, hiring, promotion, whatever, but also like data from like your marketing. I want to know what's on your website. I want to know your marketing content. I want to know your revenue, <laughs> like, like all of the data, because it's interesting how we bring it all together and the analysis that we do. The second is, what is the strategy that you already have in place? Tell us. And quite often, you don't have a DEI strategy. So that tells us you don't care. You don't, you're not putting any effort into it, right? Um, so we say, what does the data tell us? What is the strategy that's already in place? Tell us. And again, that's across the employee lifecycle, but across all of your business functions as well. Um, and then the third thing is, and this is the one that I think a lot of people forget is what do the people tell us? What do your employees tell us? And a lot of times go, people will say, oh yeah, we just did a diversity survey in Q3. We'll give you the results from that. Sure, we'll take it. But we actually do roundtables and we will do, we can do up to like, we had an organization where we did 23 roundtables um, and we cut the roundtables by different ways, levels, identities, locations, especially if you're a global organization, if you're remote, if you're in the office, um, you know, this is pre-COVID. But one of the things that we do that's a little different though, is that we we mandate that there is an exec observer in every roundtable. And the ask of the exec observer is they show up, they literally, when we're pre-COVID, when we're in a room, they actually sit in a corner. So we, we bring people in a circle or like, you know, like to make it intimate, but they sit to the side, no laptop, no phone, no devices, and they have no verbal or nonverbal engagement. And they have to just sit there and listen. So an employee can't say something and then they raise their eyebrows or shake their head or then jump in and say, well, that's not really what, what was meant, this and that. They just have to listen. That must be so hard for them. For some of the execs, it is hard, but let me tell you what it is. It is powerful for them, Laura. Execs will be brought to tears um, and just really moving because there's something, yes, you can do a survey, but there is something very intimate and different about getting people in a room with the right prompts and the right facilitation to get people to open up and forcing your leaders to hear that. The reason why we do that though, is that then when we come back and we debrief, no one can come back and say, oh, well, Trier, you're not a, Trier's team, like you all are not a part of the company. They said X, but they meant Y. You don't understand because there's always going to be a leader who was there and they'll say, nope, that's what our employees said about the culture or about our company. How do you make it so that the employees who are at that round table feel safe? Because even though you've clearly made it, it's not documented. Yep. They're still a human with their own biases, a set of ears, whatever anxieties they have that are triggered listening to this. Yeah. Um, What's interesting is like the way that we facilitate, we've been able to get folks there pretty quickly. And eventually you just forget that they're sitting in the corner. But what's been really great, Laura, is doing it in Zoom with in COVID. So you just tell them to turn their cameras off and people really forget that they're not there, right? Oh, that's um, so interesting. And we have gotten the things that people have felt comfortable saying, you know, and I've had leaders, I've had, you know, C-level executives say, I had no idea this is how my employees felt. Trier, it sounds like these conversations, I'm expecting that they would get especially as trust builds, as the executive in the corner fades into the background, into some pretty intense emotional dialogue. Is that true? And has it gotten more intense, particularly in this past year? That's exactly what has happened. I mean, last year, 
post the murder of George Floyd with everything that happened with the demonstrations and the protests with just uh, with um, Black Lives Matter. And now with, you know, stop Asian hate. I mean, just really powerful conversations. It's also interesting, the group that we've really started to focus on a lot more now, um, two groups is one caregivers and parents, right? Mm -hmm. That's a group that I think particularly has probably been forgotten about in the workplace. Um, more so unfortunately, particularly traumatized in this last year has exactly right. And, and needing to really wrap our arms around that, that group. And then the other group is, are the employees who have onboarded and joined your company remotely. And not the ones that have typically worked remotely because that's normal for them, but like those that are have never experienced your office culture physically mm -hmm. in the space that are used to that, right? Um, there was one employee that said, I left the company that I was at Friday and I sat at this desk with this computer and this mug. And then I started at a new company on Monday at this desk with this computer, this mug. And it doesn't really feel too different, right? And so that can be that can be challenging for some folks. And so that's a that's a different, unique and an underrepresented population in a lot of organizations right now that um, we call out and that we do, again, pay attention to, because for us, it's representation and it's underrepresentation. And so there's multiple ways to cut that. And it goes beyond gender, race and ethnicity. So we even have a few of those people on our team, we have small teams. Um, I think we've developed a really healthy culture. Um, should I be thinking when we go back into the office to remember that they're new to the in-person culture and in a way onboard them all over again? Well, thinking about like whatever the norms are, like they have no clue or idea what that is, right? So maybe, okay, they worked with you all for a year, but it's going to be really different. And by the way, Laura, can I just call out, there's so much that we need to be thinking about when we go into the workplace, right? And one thing that I do want, Kim and I have this conversation all the time. In the book, when we talk about um, one of the solutions is having a culture of consent, right? So that mm -hmm. you don't have physical touch violations. And Kim and I taught a, um, a workshop to people, leaders, and executives last week. And we asked how many of them, it was about 30, how many of you all have a culture of consent in your organization? And of course, everyone says, oh yeah, we have a culture of consent. Like people, you know, respect that. And I go, well, how do you enforce that? Like how did not enforce it, but how is, is it documented somewhere? Do you tell people? Oh no, it's just kind of known. Okay. Well, this is what we know. When people think about the culture of consent, it has, we think about it in the, in the, um, with the perspective of like sexual touch, sexual or intimacy, right? Like, oh, a culture of consent from like a sexual perspective. But going back into the workplace, we have an opportunity to think about culture of consent on a very different level, right? what are we going to do with handshakes? Like these are literally conversations that like we need to have because I think companies need to, before you're, or before people come into the workplace to say, how are we dealing with a handshake and to be very prescriptive and to be very intentional with that. And there's an opportunity because if we can start talking about a culture of consent with handshake, it is going to help us with the culture of consent with physical violations that we have historically seen in the workplace, which unfortunately how we still have an issue with that is just beyond me. Right. Again, its own whole show. That's right. And also again, a sign that um, these ideas, these approaches are mm -hmm. doors that we can enter. 
And that once we enter them, we can keep inhabiting that space and exploring more of it and making it a home where we can grow with our teams as long as we're willing to go through the door and ask these beginning questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so So, my challenge to leaders is like, what are we doing with the handshake when we go back to work? That raises a whole bunch of questions, not to mention we have to think about our family kitchen and our proximity to one another and all kinds oh, of and, questions. And buffet lunches are gone. Please like, <laughs> like figure it out, figure it out. Yeah, yeah there are other ways. Um, so in the kind of work you're doing with organizations, um, it's I love hearing how multi-pronged the approach is. Um, in work we've done in people analytics, we see how many organizations unfortunately look at DEI work in the form of diversity training, a bias intervention, like it's a silver bullet, uh, you know, one and done, um, instead of thinking about it as an ongoing, something that is never going to go away. It's work that we have to engage in. Um, I'm starting to think about it kind of like a yoga practice, something that should carry us through all kinds of life cycles and processes that we think about differently at different times. How are you working with organizations to make it so that they're not just, hi, Trier, hi, Kim, nice to see you. I'll see you at a conference a year from now. And not just to keep your business going, but in terms of the work that they have to do. Oh, Laura, we're always going to have business. I always tell people that, <laughs> um, you know, job security in DEI is that as long as there's a majority, there will always be a minority. And that means that this will always, there will always be a marginalized group. There will always be a forgotten, like, it, that's how we look at it. Yeah. The next um, on my list is over 50. <laughs> there you go. Right. Um, so look, we hear a lot of organizations say, oh, it's, it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's actually not a marathon either, because for those of you who have run a marathon, you know, it is, it has a destination an end and you're done. You get a finish Um, line and a party and carbs. That's right. And that's not the case with this. It's a lifelong journey, right? That we're going to have to be committed to. And we have to do the work. I would love to go to the gym one time and work out for four hours and be in shape but that's not, that's not the reality. Right. <laughs> Unfortunately, um, no. Right. Like we wake up and we brush our teeth every day. I hope. And, <laughs> you know, and go to sleep and brush our teeth. I hope um, because we need good high oral, oral hygiene. And so getting organizations to think about like, what is your DNI hygiene and what are opportunities where not just your leaders and your people team are, what are they doing consistently, but what are the opportunities that you have your employees to have good DEI hygiene as well? How are you making those investments and on the business side as well? And what we have is we have, you know, we have this framework and structure that's like, here's the employee lifecycle and here's all the things that you could do. And here are different functions in the business. And these are all the ways that, you know, it, it wraps up. Um, and, and, and you can do it. And so allowing people to have an informed decision on what they can do and have a phased approach is, is what we try to do. Here, this is all, it's such a delight to talk with you to begin with and the work you're doing so important and so interesting. Can't thank you enough for joining us for people who want to learn more about just work. Where can they look, uh, on our website, justworktogether.com. 
Trier, thank you so much. Um, and thank you for joining us to listen today. If you have a question about anything you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow us on Twitter at our handle at SXM Business and me at Laura Zarrow. New episodes of Women at Work premiere on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern time. And our entire back catalog, including our recent interview with Kim Scott, is available 24-7 via podcast. Just search on Women at Work wherever you get yours. Thanks so much, everyone. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 